From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the BG Ideas podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, an Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. In partnership with the Center for Women and Gender Equity and the Violence Prevention Center, ICS co-sponsored the Ohio Consortium for Men and Masculinities in Higher Education Annual Conference on September 14, 2018. The conference featured workshops on mentoring, queer masculinities, and violence prevention with a very special keynote address by Dr. Derek Brooms. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brooms, an associate professor of sociology and faculty affiliate in Africana Studies at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Brooms earned his Ph.D. in sociology from Loyola University of Chicago, and his research focuses on how to better support black male students on college campuses. Some of the topics he explores include campus climate, mentoring, and student support initiatives. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Derek Brooms to the program as the first speaker of ICS's 2018-2019 Speaker Series. Thanks for joining me, Derek. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled to have you here to discuss the important research you've been working on. Can you start us off by telling a little bit about what you're currently working on? So right now, I'm continuing to work on uh, research that looks at black male experiences in both secondary and higher education and also have work that looks at black and Latino males and in particular their engagement and leadership on campus. And across both of those projects, I'm really very much interested in sense of self, identity development, and ways in which uh, identity, race, gender, and other social identities matter to students' experiences. I'm also looking at a project where people make sense, meaning, and share about the killing of black men. Um, just looking at people, you know, from the range of Trayvon Martin to the more recent Freddie Gray and others. And, you know, just more recently, we've had Bothell John, uh, who was shot and killed in his in his home. And so part of it is to invite black men to make sense of the ways in which, um, you know, they experience racism, profiling, stereotyping and, and killing. Well, and it sounds like this project is like much of your other work, which is really foregrounding the knowledge that people of color have of their own lives and bringing that into academic discourse. Can you talk a little more, especially sociology historically doesn't have the greatest reputation for foregrounding the first person experiences and has often treated people of color as objects of study. So could you talk about how your work fits into challenging that history of sociology? As you mentioned, you know, there's this approach in sociology about the being objective, ways in which the the individual, uh, that experiential knowledge has, you know, in some ways been marginalized uh, within the discipline. Um, But what we know from lived experience, and in particular, some of my learning and lens is sharpened through, you know, black feminisms. So the work of Patricia Hill Collins, who really offered us some groundbreaking work on black women's epistemologies. And so my work is really kind of building out of this kind of framework where in my training in African and African American studies and oral traditions and oral histories that were minimized and diminished because they weren't written histories. And so part of it is to bring, you know, the I, the self, the voice back into this kind of serious academic study to really have a better understanding of what it is that people are dealing with, experiencing, how they're making meaning and making sense 
uh, of the things that they've experienced in their lives. And so uh, for me, I see my work as really very much multidisciplinary. And so although I'm in sociology, I'm speaking to education, I'm speaking to Africana studies, I'm speaking to other disciplines because kind of as Audre Lorde says, you know, we, we don't live single issue lives. And so therefore, when we're trying to do the work, we can't look at it in one only specific realm. Well, and speaking of that idea of interdisciplinarity, one of ICS's main goals is to foster collaboration across traditional academic uh, disciplinary boundaries. So can you talk a little bit more about the significance of connecting sociology and education um, and that with the study of race? So, you know, interestingly, there is a subfield if you will, in sociology, sociology of education. And the thing that's really kind of fascinating, if we think about them as two separate disciplines, the sociological approach and the questions that we might generate and ask sometimes look a little bit different than the questions that we might ask from edu- within an education, even though we're trying to get at the same thing. And so for me, it's, a, it's an opportunity to bring something a little bit different to both fields. And so doing writing that gets published in education journals, the questions that I'm asking sometimes look different than some of the traditional questions. And so trying to kind of bridge that gap is, you know, the point is that it's already there in some ways with the subdiscipline. Um, but when you start talking about the centering race, right, and bringing in kind of an Africana studies or an Africana uh, lens, that's where the work is is really at its full thrust in, in trying to provide some 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 insights on what is it that black men are thinking about their educational experiences not only in their current educational realm but what is it that led them to this particular juncture and so a lot of what I'm doing is looking at their narratives and how do they make sense of their experiences and what are the meanings that they extract and draw from those and those are things that we absolutely need across all three fields, if we include Africana studies in that, um, because we know that within education, there's the popular discourse that sometimes dominates what it is that we are thinking about and doing in education, or there's the political in terms of neoliberalism or other kind of political climates that we're in. Um, And then within sociology, I mean, this is a discipline that is constrained by its own past, where uh, there are very intentional efforts to exclude W.E.B. Du Bois, who it's the founder of American sociology. And so it's, you know, when I think about some of his writings and, and the groundbreaking work that he did with work such as Souls of Black Folks or Philadelphia Negro, you know, we can name so many other books that he's authored. It was about giving voice to folks who might not have been given the attention and the resources that they need uh, to improve their lives. And so part of what I see myself is in that long tradition of other people who have come before me and people who are contemporary and people who come after me about bringing those voices forward. In an interview with Inside Higher Ed, uh, you stated that we must do more to understand how black students experience schools and how institutions act on them. Can you talk about some of the schools or initiatives that you think have been really innovative and successful that could be an example for other institutions to help counteract some of these forces you're talking about? 
there's a lot of work being done by a lot of different institutions. And so I'm, I'm going to reserve not naming some institutions so that it doesn't seem like I'm privileging them over institutions that I don't know. Um, so I just don't want to give it as if these are the only ones. There's a, a few institutions who've announced that they won't look at ACT scores anymore. I think that's quite significant because, again, ACT scores are not a reliable predictor of student success in college. Um, we've seen some institutions who have guaranteed funding for students who come from families with a particular income level. And so, again, that's allowing those institutions to be a bit more accessible for students who might not and families who might not have been able to afford it in the past. Um, we've seen some institutions make very intentional partnerships with secondary schools, which, again, allows for the students to become aware of institutions and college going at much earlier levels than maybe if they had not had those partnerships. And we've also seen higher education institutions make really significant uh, partnerships with communities as well. And so offering things like summer bridge programs or college immersion programs, uh, doing things where they create volunteer opportunities for college students to go into communities to work with youth uh, from various backgrounds. And in that way, helping youth connect with college-aged individuals who might be able to offer some perspective and insight on their own experiences. And so across the landscape of higher education in the United States, uh, various institutions, both public and private, have engaged in this work. And in many ways, I think what's fascinating is that this is the work that many of our community colleges have been doing for a long time. And so we see that some of our four-year institutions are picking up on some of the uh, ways in which our community colleges and two-year institutions have invested in communities. And so I, I think that's helping us make some, some ground in creating opportunities for higher education to be more accessible for students. Because again, one of the things that we know is that some of our students who come from economically uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, sticker shock is real. So if I were to go home and tell my parents that this school costs $60,000, they will shut that conversation down. There's no way you can go because we don't even make $60,000. And so some of our colleges and universities, if they really want to value diversity and inclusion and think critically about how can we make this possible, then they have to see that their, their tuition actually is a barrier for some students even applying so there's no way you can get them to attend if they're not willing to apply because of the sticker shock. And so those are some of the things that, that I've seen across a, a number of, of colleges and universities. And I think some of what we've seen at the secondary level is really putting a strong emphasis on college readiness, again, to varying degrees of success. And that looks a little bit different depending on which state that we're in, which, which school district that we're in. And that's intended to, you know, raise the college-going numbers of students. Um, so there's, you know, we've made some pathways, and at the same time, there's still much more work needing to be done. Well, and much of your work is about what happens after recruitment, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of effort is put into getting more students of color or underrepresented groups into college, but then what happens once they get there? So you work a lot on black male initiative programs. Could you explain to us what they are and how they add to the college experience, how they differ from kind of maybe more familiar academic or even student affairs programs? I'll give a general description, but we do know that one thing I want to say up front is that Black male initiatives, uh, they vary, and so they don't all look the same. These initiatives are geared towards enhancing and improving 
black men's college uh, retention and graduation. So that when we look at the data across four-year institutions, uh, over a six-year period, black male graduation is about 34%. And so that's a number that is easy for folks to say, we've got to improve that number. And of course, that's the number nationwide, and we know that there are some institutions who do much better. And at the same time, we know that there are some institutions who uh, do not do as well. The way that these are structured uh, in general, they usually have a staff uh, member, at least one. In some cases, they have multiple staff members who are responsible for coordinating all facets of the program, which includes academic components and social components. They are geared towards students who are currently registered students at that institution. Sometimes they even have kind of an alumni base as well, so some students who might have matriculated through the college or university. Many of them have both an academic and a social component to it. So again, if we're talking about increasing retention and in, in, in graduation, we've got to have an academic focus. But I think there's a realization that we also need to offer support for the holistic realms of who students are. And so that social component becomes really important, whereas opportunities to bond with their black male peers or other male peers of color, opportunities to partner with other organizations on campus, whether these be fraternities and sororities, student government, you know, health and well-being and things of that nature. Some of these black male initiative programs include some form of an outing of sorts. So they might attend the black male summit, say at the University of Akron here in Ohio, some of them may go to the black male uh, retreat at Ohio State University. And so depending on what region they're in, what uh, state they're in, there may be kind of a larger kind of beyond the institution experience that they want to immerse their students in. And some of that, and many of these uh, BMIs have a leadership component as well. And so for me, that's really important where we're empowering students through kind of tangible skills that they can apply to other parts of their kind of student experience, but then even once they, they leave the institution. In the past, you've said that you encourage college administrators to focus on inclusion mm -hmm. instead of a diversity plan, and that colleges need to establish and intently pursue inclusion and equity plans. Can you talk about the difference that you see between a diversity plan and one um, focused on inclusion and equity? Yeah. For the most part, uh, when we think about diversity, is really about the demographics. Uh, we're going to look at demographics in a way to say and state that we are diverse because we have this number of students from racial and ethnic backgrounds. We might have this number of students from LGBTQ identities. And so we can splice that diversity in a lot of different ways. But that's really at the numerical and demographic basis. And one of the things that I argue is that recruiting students and bringing them to campus to say we're diverse doesn't help students navigate and garner success at that institution. And so that brings, you know, to the point that you raise, and, and that is, in what ways do our students feel like they belong? In what ways do they feel like they're valued and that they matter? In what ways do they feel like not only who they are, but the people that they're connected to are included in the experiences that they have on campus, both from an academic standpoint and from a social standpoint? And so academically, this work is important because what students want to know is, I can see myself in these classrooms, in the things that I'm reading, in the things that I'm studying, or there's space for me to write about myself and my background and my community in some of the writing assignments that I'm required to do. That plays a big role in how students make sense of and feel satisfied about their collegiate experiences. Um, and by the same token, that's also true in some of the programming that we do, whether it's student-centered, whether it's inviting speakers to campus, 
what are the messages and what are the things that are being said that are of value about the college experience? And then we have to think about the ways that students translate that to, okay, how does this message resonate with me and who I am? And so inclusion and diversity, you know, I think, you know, we can, we can have a conversation about the schematics of those words, but at the heart of it is this notion of equity. At the heart of it is students feel like they belong and they're valued, not just in rhetoric, but in the everyday work that people do on campus. You're doing great uh, work and very important work for black men in higher education institutions. And as you say, you know, helping them navigate through a system that at best may be benignly neglectful and at times actually hostile to them. What happens to these students once they graduate from college? That's the success measure, right? What happens after that and they're looking to enter the workforce? What are the kinds of challenges they face? Are they similar ones? Are they different ones? And how do these programs try and help students navigate that set of hurdles? Another component of some black male initiative programs are their professionalization experiences. And so this is where an alumni base can play a really kind of important part, where you've had some students who were engaged in a black male initiative, they've graduated, they've gone off and begun a professional career, and then they come back and they share with students their experiences. That really is incredibly important because what it does for those current students, for many of them at least, is it provides a, a model and a roadmap that, wait a minute, this person was at this institution, they navigated similar experiences, they made it through, and then they're out with you know a job that they seem to be happy with or engaged in work or in graduate school or whatever that might be. And so the, the professionalization is important. Some of this is really even beyond alums bringing in speakers who are in the community. They may be people who run or direct or coordinate a community-based organization. Some of them may be entrepreneurs. Uh, some of them may be small business owners. Some of them may be from national chains and other businesses. And having these kind of conversations that are tailored to black males, not necessarily that there is new or different information being told, but they can ask the questions that they want to ask and feel like it's valid because I'm in a room with people who value my opinion and my experiences. I think that's in, incredibly important. At the same time, as I mentioned, the leadership experiences are critical um, because that allows them to enhance their skill set. So you can think of things cross-cultural communication, time management, working in a team setting. All of those are things that many of our employers are looking for. I mean, they ask explicitly. They might ask in the application. They might ask recommenders. Can you speak to this person's ability to work in a team and a group? And so when we are able to offer the students those types of experiences, I would argue that there are transferable skills that they can take from those experiences and apply within a work setting uh, that becomes not only very attractive to employers, but also enhances the sense of self and sense of confidence that uh, some of our students will walk into that job with feeling like, well, I've had some similar type of experiences and I believe I can accomplish uh, the work that's set out before me. Well, so much of what you're talking about really is a reminder that in colleges and really in um, K-12 education, too, that we're not just teaching subject matter expertise. Yes. We're actually teaching people how to understand and navigate the world. Mm -hmm. But at the college level, that drops out of the official curriculum, yeah. even though it is stuff we expect 
those students, if they're to be successful, to understand and be able to activate. Mm -hmm. Um, And what you're suggesting is that, especially when you're talking first generation, potentially college students, that is not stuff that is necessarily already known and understood. Absolutely. And so to to even begin, the point that you make makes me go back to W.E.B. Du Bois. And one of the my favorite quotes from Dr. Du Bois is that education must not simply teach work, it must also teach life. And so are we preparing young people to be successful in the lives that they choose beyond the kind of education around? And so one of the things that we know is that our students come from various backgrounds. Some of them have experiences that align well with what they're being asked to do in higher education. And some of our students come from backgrounds that do not align very well. And so our students, once they enter our college campuses, some of them are having to learn what it means to be a student in higher education. And unfortunately, there's ways in which we don't think about that uh, within higher education, you know, in terms of on the faculty side, where do students know what APA is? I'm being very rudimentary because... You know, until somebody explains it to students, they might not know that what APA is. You know, the unfortunate reality is that there's a lot of assumptions that it's very easy for faculty and staff to make about the skill sets and the experiences and exposures that our students should come to college with. And the reality is, and this is not just black males, this is students across racial and ethnic backgrounds, gender identities, et cetera, urban, rural, suburban. Maybe they're not exposed to those things. And so we need to make sure that we're helping to uh, close the gap in terms of language and expectations and the ways in which we think, you know, it's a little bit of a shift in terms of the unspoken expectations that we have with that who's, who students are and what skills they automatically ought to have. Well, you're in college, you should know, but I don't. So now, now where do I go? Because what you're telling me is I can't ask you. And Right. And who's responsible for filling that gap in knowledge? I mean, you know, higher education has really shifted so much where there's such anxiety because of the costs of higher ed about ensuring students get jobs. Mm-hmm. And that often translates into conversations about vocational training. Yep. But what you're talking about is really that kind of success. We're not talking about those people should be groomed for the trades, but rather any kind of professional education has multiple dimensions. It has dimensions of kind of academic or subject matter expertise, but it is also learning a new set of codes and practices. Mm -hmm. And not knowing those codes doesn't mean you can't do the academic work. It means you haven't yet learned that secret handshake. That's right. And so some people talk about this in terms of cultural capital, right? And again, that's privy to what are my background experiences? What have I been exposed to? What's my family background? And as you mentioned, these are things that people can learn if we're willing to teach them. And so then the question just becomes, well, do they not get it in your class because you're not willing to offer it to them in some form or capacity? And are you still willing to hold them accountable to this metric knowing that they don't know? And so this is this is really important because it also speaks to how students feel like they belong, right? Where I've got these expectations placed on me and I don't I don't I don't know these things. I don't even know where to go and ask. You know what? Maybe college isn't for me. And does the faculty make them feel stupid for not knowing or does the faculty member step up and say, "Oh, let me explain what this is." Those two things can make a dramatically Absolutely. different experience. Absolutely. Especially in the life when you're thinking student. about those early 
transitional experiences. So we know that first year to second year retention is critical for student uh, persistence in college. And so, you know, what are those experiences that I'm having that first semester, that first year that says to me, you know, there's people here at this institution that believe that I can do it. I, I might not be doing the best work that I can do right now, but they don't see that as a limitation in terms of what I'm able to accomplish. And so sometimes those early reads on folks, sometimes we write people off very early in those early interactions that don't allow them an opportunity to blossom and bloom into who they can be. And so what, you know, what type of environment are we creating where we're helping students uh, pursue their goals and achieve the successes that they believe they can achieve? Or are we, you know, inherently closing doors and opportunities on them because we just don't believe that they're going to get there? Some researchers uh, studying the intersection between race and education have observed that much of the scholarship revolving around the black male experience highlights the negatives and outlines what institutions are doing wrong. So some of those folks argue that scholars ought to instead focus on positive experiences and what institutions are doing right in order to create a framework for success. How does your work reflect one or both of those positions? I would say it reflects both. Um, And it reflects both because my work comes out of student experiences. And so if it's one or the other, um, in some instances it can be, depending on what the topic is. Um, But in many ways it's both. But whatever it is, is coming through student experiences. And so I don't approach it, my work from a standpoint of what might be right or wrong. I approach it from what are your experiences? How do you make sense of that? You know, if these things didn't work, then what did you do in response? I'm trying to find out, you know, what are the, what are the ways in which students try to pursue accomplishing their goals? And invariably, what ends up coming up and coming out are the, some of the obstacles, roadblocks, and challenges that they face. And then what we see as we map those experiences into kind of the larger student narratives across colleges within our society, that these are some actual impediments in higher education that doesn't serve necessarily some of our student population well. Or these are some of the things that are doing really well. I mean, one of the things that students talk about that they have overwhelmingly identified as critical to their successes, relationships. And so some of these relationships are with their peers, in particular their male peers, um, who might be in these Black male initiatives with them. But very often it's also about faculty and staff. And so these students are able to name an individual or a number of individuals who have made a critical difference in their college experience. And sometimes it's intervention. Sometimes it's mentorship. Sometimes it's recommendation because they've been doing well. I don't want to suggest that all of the males are, you know, they're struggling. Uh, Some of it is uh, informing them about opportunities because they've been so stellar academically. You know what? You've been doing this really well. You might want to think about graduate school in these particular fields. But that's relational. And so that relational capital becomes really, really important because it can point students to resources and opportunities that really has a positive impact on their experiences. I think that's critical, and I think that's in place at every institution. I, I don't... I think we'd be hard-pressed to find an institution where there's not somebody there that are making students feel like they're welcome. And the fascinating thing is that it's not always faculty and it's not always staff. In terms of people in student affairs, sometimes it's a custodian. Sometimes it's someone working in a cafeteria. Sometimes it's a librarian who's, you know, across these three, their main job isn't necessarily student success, but they have engaged students in interactions 
that uh, really spoke to the positive realm of making students feel uh, like they belong, making students feel like they're comfortable, uh, letting students know that they've got people supporting them, even though they might be in non-kind of traditional spaces where we might look for support. So in terms of what institutions are doing right, there's committed people. You know, the hope is that there are more and more of those committed people and the students kind of build relationships with these individuals early in their careers so that they can help mitigate maybe some of the challenges or struggles that they might face later on. Well, what you're talking about is some of that mentorship or support right now is accidental or Mm -hmm. incidental. Mm -hmm. And we in higher education have to work when you get back to the idea of equity and inclusion, we have to make sure those things are built into our infrastructure so that it isn't just a happy accident to get that support, but that hopefully there are multiple people at multiple levels to building that. What are some of the ways institutions can help build that capacity? Some of the BMI programs do this orientation events that are catered specifically to black students in general, in some instances, or black males in particular. And they also invite faculty and staff to those. So very early on in you know, black male students' college careers, they're able to meet people across the university. And I might not have Dr. Schaefer for class, but I met her. And I felt like I had a good conversation with her. And um, that might be somebody that I reach out to uh, later on down the line. I met people who might have been administrators. I met people who are other staff, you know, whether it's in advising. So this individual may not be my advisor, but I know there's a friendly face. And so by introducing students to these individuals earlier where they can potentially at least plant the seeds for a relationship to grow is incredibly important early on because it helps neutralize, you know, some of our students have traveled very far to attend our institutions. And so being homesick, being away from family is a challenge for some of our students. And so what are the ways in which we can build family-like atmospheres for students very on in their college careers plays a big role. And as you mentioned, I think that's really critically important is that our students need multiple waves and levels of support. So, you know, when I talk to students, even students that I work with uh, very closely, I tell them you should not have one mentor. I mean, you need a community of mentors. Uh, you need a community period. You need a number of mentors because not one mentor can meet all of your needs. And so helping students really hear that message and understand that message, in some ways even helping them build re- brokering relationships on their behalf. So not in place of them, but saying, you know what, you're going to go over to Dr. Schaefer's office. I'm going to walk with you. So as opposed to sending a student to an office and hoping the student engages in the conversation by walking with the student. I I think that shows a level of care and concern that the students really appreciate. And I think it can help, you know, plant the seeds for that relationship to develop even further quicker, which then means that our students have these kind of strong, positive relationships early on so that if there is a struggle in a particular class, I might not feel like I can go and talk to that instructor or faculty member, but I do have people on campus that I can go and talk to. And maybe they help me devise an email that I can see. And maybe they help me think through like, oh, well, that might not be the best approach. And so they, they can help channel those students to tapping into the resources that are available on campus. Oh, you know what? Maybe you should check out the writing center. They've got tutors there to help you with any classes you're taking. Oh, have you been to the math tutors? And so, again, these, these resources are available. There are stigmas attached to some of these where, you you know, especially as I think about black males who some exhibit not the best help-seeking behaviors. 
so destigmatizing writing center or math tutors, where it's like, well, you do realize that a lot of students go over there. It's not about you. Um, it's about you getting better at what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And so helping demystify some of the resources, helping them literally, you know, walking them to other resources, helping brokering uh, meetings uh, with them and other uh, institutional agents, I think is all critical to to building that community, to building that support network that can help them navigate the institution. Part of what you're saying makes me think that one of the messages we might want to get out is that while we acknowledge it's really important for uh, students of color to find people on campus that they recognize as having experiences that might be like their own, right, for looking people with similar identities, to really ensure student success, we need a web of allyship that isn't just with individuals who have been designated mentors, designated advisors on an issue, but that faculty, staff members, that sort of white allyship and just allyship generally being not a passive thing of, Mm -hmm. well, if a student comes, I'll be helpful, but of sort of actively helping to set up structures and touch points um, to ensure student success. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, even as I think about my own experiences when I was in college, we had a uh, an admissions uh, uh, personnel by the name of Andre Phillips. And uh, Mr. Phillips, I don't even know if he had an open door policy. I mean, you, know, you hear people talk about open door policies. But I know when his door was open, I would knock and he'd let me come in and sit down. He would talk to me about you know, my experiences, or he would just let me sit down and read. I knew I had a space on campus that that I could go, A. And B, I knew I had somebody I could talk to. My college experience would not have been the same if I didn't have that office. And it also allowed me to develop the confidence to build relationships with other people. So there are other, as you can imagine, Andre Phillips is a black male. There are other people who worked in the admissions office who weren't black males. Uh, they were, you know, other people. And I built relationships with multiple people in the office because, one, I was in there (laughs) a lot, but it also helped me see that there are many people at the institution who could be a supporter, who could help point me in a particular direction, who could help me better understand an experience that I had or uh, help me pursue an opportunity that I might not have known about. And so I think your point is critical is that, you know, we need a web. And I mentioned Andre Phillips in particular because, to my knowledge, he never taught a class. So I wasn't going to him for necessarily academic advice, but it was more so in understanding what I was experiencing. And I had an advisor who was Maxine Proctor, who was phenomenal. And so as I think about people on the staff side, they helped me make sense of what I was experiencing on the academic side. And they uh, they offer support that helped me believe that, you know, I can do this because they could talk to me about other students who had come through that space. I was in their offices or in the vicinity of them when other students were talking to them. I think about those two um, in particular that helped me see that if I'm going to make it through this place and be successful and accomplish what I want to accomplish, I need a team of folks. And we know that. So to your point, you know, it doesn't have to be formal. Uh, we, we can do better at surrounding our students with support and we can we can do these in very informal ways uh, that allow for dynamism and fluidity for students to tap into it in their kind of own ways Uh, but what it also does is allow us in in a sense these kind of wraparound services where students don't feel like uh, they have to compartmentalize what's academic what's social what's personal but people are here 
for their kind of holistic development, you know, and their success. What's interesting is so much of what you're talking about that sort of these things that uh, help students be successful are really low tech and low investment mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're about the human touch yep. and about personalizing what can feel like a very impersonal bureaucratic system because universities are large bureaucratic places. And I think we forget sometimes that from a student point of view, I mean, I've been at my institution here 12 years, so I know who to call (laughs) if I have questions now, right? right? right. But students don't. There's so much that can be done in a low-tech way just to make them feel like people again and not like their social security number or whatever Mm -hmm. their student ID number Mm -hmm. is. And that goes to this sense of belonging, sense of mattering, and sense of value, you know, when, when people know you by name, I mean, that, that makes a difference in, in what students experience. Um, when you're, you know, it's one of the guys that I work with said, you know, they, they notice when you're not there, right? I mean, and that means that I'm, I'm looking for you to be there and I want you to be there. And as you mentioned, I mean, these are all from that point of humanity, that point of human touch where being in proximity to others really does help feel like I'm supposed to be here. Whereas if I'm just trying to figure this all out by myself and I feel alone, I feel isolated, I feel alienated, that makes this work, uh, being a student, that much harder. And that impacts students in, in very real ways that uh, not only impacts their you know, academic work, it also impacts them personally and socially. It impacts their uh, well-being. It impacts their social-emotional well-being. And so we know that you know college is a place where there's so many opportunities, but also can be alienating and isolating. Um, And so that that human touch is critical. At ICS, we are invested in fostering conversations outside of academia, as well as, you know, within our campus and with other academics. How do you see your work influencing people outside of the academic world? So when I think about some of the service work that I engage in, I'm heavily invested in numerous communities, and some of that is through Boys and Girls Club, some of that is through YMCA, some of that is just through the neighborhood, you know, and some neighborhood organizations, some of that is with families. And so I think that, you know, engaging with these different communities and community members and organizations uh, really keeps the work that I do very focused on individuals and families. And so, you know, one of my taglines is that I wouldn't be a professor if there were no students, period. And so we know that our students come from families, they come from communities. And so part of our work should be centered, I believe, and maybe that's my kind of Africana studies training coming out, uh, where the, the community is important to what it is that, you know, the work that we're doing. We talk about equity and social justice and things like that. Um, but I also know that our students have lives beyond the academy. And so some of the students who I work with or am connected with, they have graduated and they participate in things beyond their professional lives like flag football. I'll go to those games because I'm invested in as people. You know, and and not everybody's going to stay in higher education or the academy for their careers. And obviously, as a student, that doesn't mean they're going to go back and work in those spaces. And so showing up in other areas of people's lives really reveals to them, shows them, and demonstrates that you do care about them beyond just, I mean, I don't even talk to, beyond just what they do academically and how well they might perform in terms of a GPA and things of that nature. Um, And only while they're And only while they're, right. 
and on your campus. Um, I have students, you know, and, and this goes to technology where we can really take advantage of it. I have students that I have text conversations with that we set up phone calls. Hey, man, I, need, I haven't talked to you in a while. We need to check in on each other. And this is both men and women, so it's not, you know, even though most of my research is on black males. There are students who have moved to different parts of the country. Um, I've written recommendations letters, recommendation letters for, but that's because they've asked me to. And so there's something about the relationship that they value and they believe that I'm going to speak well on their behalf. Some of them are working in their jobs and they just call me, reach out, talk to me about how it's going. But I think that's part of community, right, is that our work is not just confined to the walls of the institutions where we work. For me, it's spills out into the communities and where our students and where people live and the families that they develop and engage in and the communities they build outside of that. Thank you so much, Derek. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking Absolutely. with you. Our producer today is Chris Cavera. Special thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the School of Media and Communication, the Center for Women and Gender Equity, and the Violence Prevention Center. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs>